Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Warning, the following podcast is not suitable for all audiences. We go into great detail with every case that we cover and do our best to bring viewers even deeper into the stories by utilizing disturbing audio and sound effects. Trigger warnings from the stories we cover may include violence, rape, murder, and offenses against children. This podcast is not for everyone. You have been warned. May 24th, 2022 started out like a normal day in the small Texas town of Uvalde. But by the end of that day, there was a collective gloom over the entire nation as we learned that 19 students and two teachers lost their lives after being gunned down in their fourth grade classrooms. Elementary schools are supposed to be filled with laughter, joy, and innocence. But Robb Elementary was everything but that on that horrific day. The sound of laughter was replaced with screams. There was fear instead of joy. And for every child there that day, if they didn't lose their lives, they lost a piece of their innocence. No child should ever feel unsafe in their classroom. They shouldn't have to smear their friend's blood all over them to stay alive. And they definitely shouldn't have to sit in a room with a gunman for 77 minutes while the police were just feet away the entire time. But that was the reality for the students of Robb Elementary. And soon enough, the town of Uvalde was a topic across many homes in America. So in this episode, we are going to talk about the victims of the Uvalde school shooting, the survivors, the horrific aftermath, and the police response. So this is the Uvalde school shooting part three. I'm Courtney Brown. And I'm Colin Brown. And you're listening to Murder in America. Lalo Diaz Jr. had lived in Uvalde his whole life. This was his home. These were his people. So, like the rest of the town, he never expected tragedy to strike so close to home. On May 24, 2022, Diaz got the call that he was needed at Robb Elementary. He served as Uvalde's Justice of the Peace, but because it's such a small town, he also served as their de facto coroner. 
and that day, he was needed to help identify the bodies, a task he didn't want to do, but he knew he had to. Diaz would later say, For two hours, I sat there, preparing myself and getting ready for the scene we're about to see. Because you know it's going to be a tough scene. Lalo Diaz Jr. actually went to school at Robb Elementary. So did his wife and all of his children. So as he drove up to the school that day, it was hard to believe that this was the site of one of America's worst school shootings. Before going inside, he reminded himself, quote, you have to be strong and you have to maintain professionalism because the families are counting on you now. And with that, he took a deep breath and walked through the doors. First, he was approached by the medical examiner who debriefed him on the situation. Keep in mind, it's about 2.30 p.m. on the day of the shooting, so there's still a lot of chaos going on at the school. In fact, some of the injured students had been moved to other classrooms so that EMS could tend to their injuries. Diaz would later say, So when we got there, there were children in four rooms, the initial two rooms plus two other rooms. We then went room by room getting the plan together on what we were going to need to make sure that we identified everybody correctly. After coming up with a plan, Diaz entered room 111 and 112, and nothing could have prepared him for what he was about to walk into. The classrooms looked like a war zone. There was blood, body parts, and carnage all over. It was even said that the rooms had this overwhelming smell of iron because of all the blood. You see, the weapon used in this shooting, like most mass shootings, was an AR-15 a weapon built for war. The gun is designed to blow apart its targets. When the bullets of an AR-15 are shot into an adult human body, it's so destructive it can decapitate a person. And these victims were children. So as you can imagine, the trauma to their little bodies was absolutely horrific. Diaz would later say, quote, it's something you never want to see. And it's something you don't, you cannot prepare for. It's a picture that's going to stay in my head forever, end quote. But Diaz had a job to do, so he did his best to put his emotions aside and began identifying the bodies. The parents who had children in room 111 and 112 sent in descriptions of what their child was wearing that day. Sadly, most of the bodies were so torn apart that that was the only way they could be identified. So starting in room 111, Diaz located the body of 11-year-old Layla Marie Salazar. Layla was born on September 19, 2010. She was the youngest of her siblings and the only daughter. According to her family, she was very passionate about singing, dancing, and the Dallas Cowboys. One of her favorite bands in the world was Guns N' Roses. And every morning when her dad would drive her to school, they would sing Sweet Child of Mine at the top of their lungs. Layla was known for her generosity and joy that she brought everyone who knew her. Her mother said she loved being out in nature and some of their sweetest memories were going to the Uvalde Memorial Park and feeding the ducks. As Layla grew older, she discovered her love for running and her family believed that she would one day be a big track star. Her mom said, quote, She gave the world her heart, her spirit, and I wish she was here so she could have been something like a track star. She loved running. 
It was her favorite thing. She loved track. She loved to run. She could have been something. And I'm just sad we're not going to have that. End quote. But her father said that now his daughter would, quote, run with the angels. In her obituary, they wrote, quote, Our hearts will forever be broken. Layla's love will create an opening in heaven where her love will pour through and shine down upon us. End quote. Next, Lalo Diaz locates the body of 10-year-old Uzziah Sergio Garcia. Uzziah was born on August 13, 2011, and was known for his loving and kind personality. He enjoyed swimming, running, football, and playing games on his Nintendo. Uzziah grew up in San Angelo, where it was said he was bullied. So, moving to Uvalde was an exciting, fresh start, and he seemed to really thrive here. After the move, his family said he went from being quiet and reserved to really outgoing. His uncle Brent said, He always wanted to put a smile on your face. He didn't like it when you were sad or upset or anything like that, so he'd go out of his way to make you smile, to laugh, to make you forget that pain. It was also said that he loved his family and Jesus. Family members said, We will forever miss Uzi, but most of all his contagious laugh, his shaggy hair, and silly jokes. We will miss saying, I love you and Jesus loves you, and especially his reply, and Jesus loves you too. A few months before the shooting, Uzziah had visited his grandparents during spring break and spent the majority of his time throwing the football with his grandfather, Manny Renfro. Manny would later tell the Associated Press, such a fast little boy and he could catch a ball so good. There were certain plays that I would call that he would remember and he would do it exactly like we practiced. He was the sweetest little boy that I've ever known. Uzziah's favorite superhero was Spider-Man and he dreamed of one day becoming a police officer so he could save lives just like Spider-Man did. The next body identified in room 111 was that of 10-year-old Nevaeh Alyssa Bravo. Nevaeh was born on January 12th, 2012, and her name was Heaven spelled backwards. A very fitting name because she was described as an angel on earth. Nevaeh loved her family and would always help her parents care for her two brothers and sister. Her dad would later say, quote, she always helped me out a lot. She was a very good girl, end quote. Nevaeh enjoyed playing softball, riding her bike, and her favorite colors were pink and purple. Her family said she had such a positive energy and was always a bright light in their lives. At her funeral, she was put in a pink dress with a silver tiara, and her small silver casket was decorated with pink and purple flowers and a teddy bear. Her cousin would later write on Facebook, quote, it just feels like a nightmare we cannot wake up from. Her siblings have to wake up every day knowing she's not here with them. Nevea now flies with the angels, end quote. The next child identified in room 111 was 10-year-old Jose Manuel Flores Jr. Jose was born on November 10th, 2011, and it was said that Jose absolutely loved his family and was very protective of his siblings. His little sister Andrea told KSAT, he would always support me and always play with me. Jose was an honor roll student who had dreams of one day becoming a police officer, and in his free time, he loved to play baseball. Not long before the shooting, he told his mom, one of these days, mama, I'm going to be able to be a big baseball player. His mother, Alyssa, also said that Jose always had a big, toothy smile on his face and that his laugh was contagious. She liked to call him her little shadow as he was always right by her side. A poem was written for Jose, and it read, I found my way to heaven above a sky so vast and blue, 
with a pair of wings upon my back that I had earned for loving you. Please tell all my caring siblings to always look after one another, that they'll grow up to do great things and that they've got the proudest brother. I'm still playing the sport that I love on the greenest field with golden bases and lots of fans up in the stands cheering with 20 familiar faces. God also gave me a silver badge like a policeman would proudly wear. He said there's no need for it in heaven, but I could protect you all down there. I know that I'll never have to worry about the greatest city to which I belong, for it'll always be filled with endless love and be forever Uvalde strong. The next body identified in room 111 was nine-year-old Eliana Amea Garcia, otherwise known as Ellie. Ellie was born on June 4th, 2012, and she was the youngest victim of the massacre. Ellie loved to laugh and spend time with her four sisters, and they would often practice their cheerleading routines together. Ellie also played basketball for the Tree City Spurs and proudly wore the number 21 on her jersey. Her family described her as gentle, loving, and a quote, long-term planner who was already picking out dresses and dances for her first quinceanera five years away, end quote. Her father, Stephen, is a DJ, and through his business, Freestyle Vision Sound and Lighting, he conducted a hashtag Live Like Ellie Tour 23 in honor of his daughter. He would later write on Facebook, quote, I've cried a million tears, but out of all those tears I've cried, I find happiness in performing at live events and sharing her happiness and everything that was great about her on that stage. And to watch everybody dance reminds me of my beautiful Ellie. Ellie had so much love for her sisters and showed it every day. I miss you, Amor. End quote. Now, Ellie's absolute favorite movie in the world was Encanto. And shortly after her death, her family was given a custom-made Encanto dress from Disney. They added a note with it that said, quote, We heard you love Encanto. You may notice how important butterflies are in the movie. They represent magic, hope, and family, among many other things. We gave Ellie a butterfly and wanted all of her sisters to have one too. Fly until you find your way towards tomorrow. End quote. The next victim in room 111 was 10-year-old Rogelio Fernandez Torres. Rogelio was born on December 6, 2011, and according to his family, he loved being outside. Rogelio was one of those kids that was constantly running around with his cousins, playing tag, football, kicking soccer balls, and climbing trees, no matter how hot it was outside. His parents said that he was also super helpful and would do his chores without even being asked. When it came to his younger sister, Mary, he considered himself her protector and always made sure she got up for school in the morning and off the bus in the afternoon. He also enjoyed Pokemon, football, playing video games, and he loved playing board games with his family. Rogelio had big dreams of joining the Navy, becoming a landscaper, and even building his own house when he got older. After his death, his mother put her Mother's Day card from him in a box and said she'll cherish it forever. She would later say, I'm not going to have a Mother's Day card from him this year. I'm not going to have a hug from him. It's going to be hard. His family also put a memorial around the tree in their front yard that he would always climb. And in the months after the shooting, the tree really blossomed with beautiful green leaves. It's been hard on Rogelio's siblings, grappling with the fact that he will never come home. His mother said of his six-year-old sister, She knows he's not here anymore, but she still asks me when he's coming home. I tell her, he's not coming home. 
He's in heaven looking down on you. He's taking care of you, taking care of all of us. Rogelio will be remembered as a loving and bright young boy, but his mother remarked, I lost a piece of my heart. The next victim identified in room 111 was 10-year-old Alexandria Ania Rubio, or Lexi. Sadly, as Lelo Diaz was identifying the bodies, he actually recognized her. He knew members of Lexi's family, so seeing her among the victims was difficult to say the least. Lexi was born on October 20th, 2011, and she was extremely smart. Her family said she always received straight A's, but her favorite subject was math. Lexi had dreams of attending St. Mary's University to obtain an undergraduate in math, and then she wanted to go get her law degree, which would have been the perfect fit for her because her mom said, quote, when she knew she was right, she so often was, she stood her ground. She was firm, direct, voice unwavering, end quote. Her father, Felix, would later say, quote, Lexi was a quiet child, shy, smart, appreciative of life and anything that comes her way. Her athletic ability, we were just seeing what was coming about from her, end quote. Lexi loved sports, including basketball and volleyball, but her favorite was softball. In her free time, she and her dad would play catch in her family's backyard, and she loved every minute of it. Her mother, Kimberly, said it was best to honor Lexi by becoming the best version of yourself, saying, quote, whatever it is that you're struggling with, if you just try, if you just give it your best, to me, that's honoring her because that was her personality. She always wanted to be the best that she could be, and she would always help others in the same way. End quote. At Lexi's funeral, her parents asked the attendees to wear bright colors to match her bright personality. Another victim from room 111 was 10-year-old Jace Carmela Luvanos. Jace was born on February 2nd, 2012, and he was the youngest of five children. He lived only one block away from Robb Elementary School, and his house was known as one of the favorite hangout spots with the neighborhood kids. Six or seven children were always in the backyard with Jace, roughhousing and playing around. His family said that Jace was always doing little things to let them know he loved them. He would leave notes around the house that said, I love you. And every single morning, he would start a pot of coffee for his grandparents. On the morning of the shooting, Jace's grandmother was actually taking his sister to the San Antonio Zoo. And sadly, Jace begged to go with them. But in their eyes, he only had two days left of school and they didn't want him to skip, so they made him go. Later that day, they heard about the shooting at the school and it wasn't until around 11 p.m. when they learned that he was one of the victims. His grandpa would later say, that's why my wife is hurting so much because he wanted to go to San Antonio. He was so sad he couldn't go. Maybe if he would have gone, he'd be here. At his funeral, Jace was laid to rest in a green dinosaur casket because dinosaurs were his absolute favorite thing. Sadly, Jace's cousin, Jayla Nicole Silguero, would also die in the shooting. She was in room 112 and they would be buried alongside each other. His grandfather Carmelo said, a thoughtful boy who always had a smile on his face and loved to make others laugh. The next victim of room 111 was 10-year-old Xavier James Lopez, or XJ. Xavier was born on March 12, 2012, and he was described as outgoing and funny and enjoyed dancing for TikTok videos on his mother's account. 
He was also athletic and enjoyed playing soccer and basketball. But one of his favorite hobbies was making hot salsa and even sold some of his creations to his family and friends. With the money he earned, Xavier would take it to the local dollar store and purchase toys for him and his brothers. His mother would later tell the Associated Press, quote, he was just a loving 10-year-old little boy, just enjoying life, not knowing that this tragedy was about to happen. He was very bubbly, loved to dance with his brothers, his mom. This has just taken a toll on all of us, end quote. Xavier absolutely loved his family and was very protective of his mom. She would later tell CBS News, quote, if anyone was mean to me, Xavier was right there, like, you're not gonna be mean to my mom. He was my helper. He was my, he was my best friend, my everything, end quote. Now, Xavier sometimes struggled in school. He would be diagnosed with ADHD, which made it hard for him to focus. But his mom said that he worked really hard his fourth grade year to get good grades. And his hard work paid off. On the morning of the shooting, his mom, Felicia, attended his award ceremony. And when he accepted his AB Honor Roll Award, she said he was smiling from ear to ear. Afterwards, she said, he just kept looking at it like, I did it, I did it. I told him, baby, I'm so proud of you, end quote. Later that day, Felicia heard about the shooting and went to a nearby hospital to try and find her son. She eventually heard that an unidentified child was there. A first responder then called her and said, quote, we heard that you have a child there from Uvalde. Can you describe him? Felicia told them that Xavier was wearing blue jeans and a black shirt. The man then responded, well, the child we have is naked and he only has one shoe on. So Felicia replies, okay, well, he has a bald spot on his head. It's small, but if you move his hair, you can see it. Moments later, she was given the news that it was indeed her son. And she said she, quote, lost it. Felicia said that life without Xavier has been the hardest battle she's ever faced. She keeps the clothes that he wore to school that day in a bag next to her bed. And every night before she goes to sleep, she smells it. She told CBS, quote, you miss that touch. You miss that smell. We always complain about stinky feet and, you know, you stink, take a bath, but you miss that. I know it sounds weird or creepy, but I smell his shoes. I smell his socks. I smell his clothes. But I try not to have them out too long because I don't want the smell to go away. End quote. Before his death, Xavier had also recently started dating a girl in his class named Annabelle. The young lovebirds even took a picture together at the award ceremony earlier that morning. Sadly, Annabelle would die that day too, and their bodies were later buried alongside each other. 10-year-old Annabelle Guadalupe Rodriguez was born on November 29, 2011, and she was described as a sweet and caring young girl who loved the color blue. She also loved spending time with her sister, Angeli, and other sister, Anastasia. One of her favorite things to do with her sisters was watch TikTok videos and learn dances. She also loved animals, especially her family dog named Patrona, and she dreamed of one day becoming a veterinarian. Annabelle was a smart, bright, and joyful little girl who always excelled in school. 
She also loved going to school, partly because she got to see her new boyfriend, Xavier Lopez. The two had actually been lifelong friends who always had a crush on each other. And once they started dating, their parents said that they texted each other every night saying, I love you. Their parents would laugh and ask, how do y'all know about love? Although the two were young, it was really special getting to see how much they cared for one another. Their teacher, Mr. Arnie Reyes, even had a banner hung up in his classroom titled Lovebirds for the students in his class who were dating. Xavier and Annabelle were proud to be on that list. Annabelle's mom would later say, I miss you so much, baby girl. You should be here with us, celebrating like we did every year with our family. The final victim of Room 111 was 10-year-old Jacqueline Jalen Cazares, or Jackie. Jackie was born on June 10, 2012, and she was described as a free spirit who loved helping others. And this story I found was just so sweet. But apparently Jackie and her family went to a cemetery to visit a loved one. And while they were there, Jackie saw an old man sitting alone at his wife's grave. So she asked her mom if she could go sit with him. And over the next 30 minutes or so, Jackie knelt by the old man, keeping him company during an obviously sad time in his life. By the time the old man left, he was smiling. And that's the kind of girl she was. Her father, Javier, would later say, quote, she was like any other nine-year-old girl, full of life, love, and happiness. She was a firecracker. She had a sparkling personality, very giving, big-hearted, end quote. Jackie also had big dreams for her life. She wanted to be a veterinarian. She wanted to travel the world and go to Paris. She also wanted to have exactly six children, and she already had all of their names picked out. Jackie was very particular, and she always knew exactly what she wanted. When her first communion was coming up, she wanted to pick out the perfect dress. After looking on Amazon, she ended up finding the exact one she wanted. Now, it was a little pricey, but her parents decided to get it for her. And less than one month later, it would also be the dress they buried her in. On the morning of the shooting, her parents came to watch her at the award ceremony, and her dad made sure to blow her a kiss before she went back to class. That would be the very last time he would ever see his daughter alive. Jackie's parents said they want people to remember her by her caring spirit. She always urged her parents to give money to the homeless and to pick up the restaurant bill when she saw people dressed in their military uniforms. She cared so much about everyone. Her dad said, quote, Jackie was the one that would go out of her way to help anyone. It gives me comfort that she would have done something to help her classmates in that very scary scenario. She touched a lot of people just with her hugs. You can tell how much she loved somebody. That's the one thing I don't want anyone to forget. End quote. Now, before we get to the victims of Room 112, we want to take a second to talk about the teacher of Room 111, Mr. Arnulfo Arnie Reyes. Arnie had been a teacher at Robb Elementary for seven years. He was known for his sense of humor, and his students loved joking around with him. But Arnie didn't always want to be a teacher. When he was younger, he dreamed of becoming a lawyer. However, as time went on, he discovered his love for children, and he knew that becoming a teacher would be the perfect fit. And he was right. Arnie was a great teacher who made a huge difference in his students' lives. He made school fun. When Rob Elementary had themed school days, he always dressed up. 
and on Twin Day, he even matched outfits with some of his students. Before the massacre at their school, Arnie would hold hands with students as he walked them to the bus. He would interrupt his lesson with a funny joke, and he always made sure every student was able to order lunch every day. He loved making a difference in the lives of his students, and it was shown through his dedication inside of Room 111. Arnie had 18 students total in his class that year, but seven of them would go home after the award ceremony that morning. Little did they know by doing so, they narrowly escaped death. But like we mentioned in last week's episode, Arnie's classroom door had been broken for several years, and he had talked with the administration several times about getting it fixed, but it was never done, which clearly was a deadly mistake. After hearing the gunshots ring out in the hallway that morning, Arnie recalled his active shooter training and immediately ushered his kids to the corner of the room under the desks. It was something that they had practiced before, but looking back on it, that actually made things so much worse. By putting the children all together in the corner of the room, Arnie said that his students were basically sitting ducks for the gunmen. After getting shot in the arm, the shooter turned his attention to Arnie's 11 students and he killed every single one of them in the right-hand corner of his classroom. That day was by far the worst day of Arnie's life. Not only did he witness his entire class get murdered, but he also had to stay in the room with the gunmen throughout the entire shooting. When Arnie learned all of the details, he was furious about the officer's lack of action that day saying, quote, there's really no excuse for 77 minutes, end quote. And believe it or not, Arnie's distant cousin was actually police chief Pete Arredondo. Arnie would later say, quote, I wish that he would have said, I'm going to go in there because that's my family, but he didn't, end quote. Now, after law enforcement took down the shooter, Arnie was carried into an ambulance without being put on a stretcher, he had been shot three times in the arm and back, and it was extremely difficult for him to breathe. But after being put into an ambulance, they put a chest tube in, and from there, he was lifelighted to San Antonio. Luckily, he would end up surviving his injuries, but he had a long road of recovery and surgeries ahead. However, the physical wounds were nowhere near as painful as his emotional wounds. Arnie Reyes got a lot of criticism in the days after the shooting. Many people wondered how he survived when his classroom of children didn't. But Arnie did the best he could that day. He followed active shooter protocol, and he even stood in front of his students when the gunman came into the room. But there really wasn't much he could do against someone with an AR-15. And trust me, he didn't need the public scrutiny. When Arnie found out his entire class died that day, he was overcome with guilt. He would later say, parents lost one child, families lost one child, but I lost 11 that day. For the past year, these students were his life. They were like his kids in a sense. And after the shooting, he constantly found himself asking, what if, what could I have done differently? But at the end of the day, he has to remind himself that he did what he could. He also says that no amount of training in the world will adequately prepare someone for an active shooter. He says the only way we can change this is by changing the laws. Since the shooting, Arnie often reflects on his students and the potential they had. 
He says that one of them may have one day found the cure to cancer. Another may have been president, but now we'll never know. He also says that he'll spend the rest of his life making sure the victims didn't die in vain. Arnie Reyes has since spoken with the media about how the police abandoned them that day. He would later tell ABC, quote, After everything, I get more angry because you have a bulletproof vest. I had nothing. I had nothing. You were supposed to protect and serve. There is no excuse for their actions that day, and I will never forgive them. I tell the parents I'm sorry. I tried my best of what I was told to do. Please don't be angry with me. End quote. But the parents of Uvalde held no ill will towards Mr. Reyes. In fact, once he made it home from the hospital, a welcome home parade was made for him, where people in his community made signs and honked their horns just to let him know that they were happy he was home. There's a video from this day where he's sitting in a chair and as all the people drive by welcoming him, a woman who lost her daughter in his classroom comes over and gives him a hug. And as soon as she does, they both just start sobbing in each other's arms. It was her way of telling him, we love you, we're here for you, and we don't blame you, which is exactly what he needed to hear. Today, Arnie Reyes is still recovering from his injuries, but the support of his community is what gets him through. He would later say, quote, I'm here. A lot of it that's getting me forward in all of this is the love that I'm getting from my community, the love that I get from my family, and the thought that I want to make things happen for my students so that they wouldn't die in vain. End quote. Back at Robb Elementary on May 24th, 2022, the de facto coroner, Lalo Diaz Jr., had just finished identifying the 11 victims out of room 11 had just finished identifying the 11 victims of room 111, and now it was time for room 112. One of the deceased students located in this room was 10-year-old Amory Joe Garza. She was born on May 10, 2012, and died just a few weeks after her 10th birthday. Amory was described as a diva with a heart of gold. She enjoyed spending time with her younger brother, 3-year-old Zane, and every morning before she left for school, she would kiss him goodbye. During the shooting, Amory died after trying to call 911 on her cell phone. The shooter overheard her, walked in the room, and shot her. While the police were right outside, Amory's father Angel said, My little love is now flying high with the angels above. Please don't take a second for granted. Hug your family. Tell them you love them. I love you, Amory Joe. Watch over your baby brother for me. Amory's best friend, Chloe, who survived the shooting, would tell reporters that the moment the gunman entered the classroom... Amory comforted other students by telling them it was going to be okay. So in her last moments, she was thinking of others. Amory dreamed of one day becoming an art teacher. However, that dream was savagely taken from her. Her mother would later write on social media, You did not deserve this, my sweet baby girl. Mommy needs you. Amory, I can't do this life without you. Another victim of room 112 was 10-year-old Maite Juliana Rodriguez. She was born on November 17, 2011, and according to her family, she was obsessed with the ocean. When she grew up, she wanted to attend Texas A&M Corpus Christi to become a marine biologist. 
Her mother, Anna, said she was an old soul who had a deep appreciation for old cameras, typewriters, and almost everything found in antique stores. Maite and her mom bonded by watching movies on the couch while eating pickles and Takis. She also really loved her brothers. She always doted on her baby brother, Leo, and she loved a good wrestling competition with her older brothers. Anna said, quote, she really liked to beat the boys, end quote. One of Maite's favorite things to wear was her green Converse that had a little pink heart drawn on the left shoe. Sadly, as Lalo Diaz was identifying the bodies, Maite was one of the difficult ones. Her body had been so mutilated in the attack, it was impossible to tell who she was based on just looking at her. So those green converse were the only way investigators were able to identify her. According to the San Antonio Express News, quote, the shoes have since become a symbol of the national gun violence prevention movement, end quote. Maite's mother was able to keep the shoes and now has them inside of a glass case at her home, right next to the urn that holds Maite's ashes. Another child found in room 112 was 10-year-old Tess Marie Mata. Tess was born on February 6, 2012, and according to her family, she loved sports, especially baseball. They said she spent the majority of her free time in the backyard teaching herself how to pitch, and she had dreams of one day making the Little League All-Star team. Her older sister, Faith, admitted that anytime the Astros were on television, Tess would drop what she was doing and put on her Astros t-shirt, saying she would run into the living room and just cheer for them, even though she didn't know what was going on. Tess also enjoyed gymnastics and soccer, and she loved learning TikTok dances. Her family said she was funny and sassy, and sometimes wanted to be a girly girl. For school pictures one year, she begged her parents to let her wear a formal style dress, but they said no because it seemed a little too dressy for picture day. However, that morning, Tess shoved the dress into her backpack and changed into it before her pictures were taken. And looking back, they were so glad she ended up wearing it. Inside her bedroom, Tess had a large cork board filled with pictures and a jar of money, where she hoped to save enough for a Disney World trip. It was also said that she absolutely adored her older sister, Faith, who had gone off to college at Texas State University. She hoped to celebrate her sister's upcoming college graduation by jumping into the San Marcos River with her, a tradition that is held at the school. However, that day eventually came and Tess was not there. So instead, Faith held a picture of her younger sister and together they jumped into the water. The next victim of room 112 was 10-year-old McKenna Lee Elrod. McKenna was born on April 19, 2012, and she was described as a bright and friendly child who loved playing softball, dancing, singing, and gymnastics. Her family said she was the sweetest little girl, and she would often leave notes around their home for them to find. McKenna was a member of the 4-H club, and she absolutely loved animals, especially her dog, Bailey, and her horse named Dude. One of her favorite things to do was drive around on the ranger with her dad and feed their goats, horses, and cows. McKenna didn't mind getting dirty, but she was also described as a girly girl. She loved getting her nails done, and she always wore the brightest colors. Her tubes of lipstick had the letter M written on them 
to make sure her sisters didn't steal her things. She also enjoyed makeup tutorials and she took detailed notes on how to do it. She once told her mom that she didn't want her makeup to look too cakey. Family members said she was 10 going on 20. McKenna was also fascinated with butterflies. Her mother, April, said, quote, on her last Mother's Day note to me, she had drawn butterflies on it. And so every day, even in this cold weather, like every day, I've seen butterflies. I feel like it's a sign that she gives us that everything's going to be okay, end quote. On one of the first times her parents went to visit her grave, a butterfly flew over to her dad and it landed on his hand. And with tears in their eyes, they all watched as that butterfly just kind of lingered for a while. It was a beautiful reminder that she will be with them forever. Now, sadly, when investigators went into classroom 112, McKenna was found in her teacher's arms. She loved Miss Irma Garcia, and in her last moment, she ran to her for protection. Another victim found in the corner of room 112 was 11-year-old Miranda Gail Mathis. She was born on May 6, 2011, and according to her family, she loved playing outside and being out in nature. Her mom said Miranda was constantly collecting rocks, feathers, and shells. She also had a huge imagination and especially loved mermaids and unicorns. She could often be found drawing them on her computer. Her mother, Deanna, said she had a love for unicorns and mermaids, but she also loved wolves. She enjoyed the colors purple and pink. She loved pizza, tacos, and boneless wings. I want people to remember her by her love of animals. I want them to remember her smile and beautiful eyes. She also said that the thing she will miss the most is hearing her daughter's voice and the way she said, Mom, I love you. Another victim of room 112 was 10-year-old Aletha Haven Ramirez. She was born on April 28, 2012, and was the oldest of her three siblings. And one thing that stood out about Aletha was her incredible drawings. Her parents said that she started drawing at age four, and over the years, she grew to be really talented. During the school year, Rob Elementary held a poster contest and Aletha made one about bullying prevention. On it, she drew a girl with long black hair and a cape draped over her shoulders that read, quote, no bully, as she protects a group of children from random insults that are being thrown at them. Then in bright color, she wrote, kindness takes courage. Today, Aletha's legacy is remembered through Spread Kindness Day, which is held every year on April 28th. Her mother, Jessica, believed her daughter would have gone on to accomplish great things, saying, quote, I knew from the very beginning when she first started to draw at age four that she was going places because of how talented she was, end quote. Before her death, Aletha had submitted an art piece to Google for a Doodle for Google contest, and it was later published. She also had two art pieces displayed at the Beeville Art Museum, and a book was written about her by a woman named Violet LeMay titled, Aletha Ramirez Was an Artist. In her own words, Aletha said, quote, I want the world to see my art and show the world what I can do. I want people to be happy when they see my passion in art, end quote. The next victim of Room 112 was 10-year-old Jayla Nicole Silguero. She was born on September 19th, 2011 
and her family said she was always seen with a smile on her face. Every Friday during football season, Jayla showed her school spirit by wearing her cheerleading uniform. She also loved to skateboard and ride her bike, and her favorite color was pink. Sadly, her cousin, Jace Carmela Luvanos, was a victim in room 111, so their family lost two on that tragic day. And like her cousin, she also begged to stay home that morning, something that seemed odd because she always loved being with her friends. However, her mother Veronica believed that it was too close to the end of the year that encouraged her to go. Family members would later describe Jayla as a big ray of sunshine. She was real talkative. She had a big heart, especially with children younger than her. She just had a big heart. She's going to be missed a lot. In a joint wake with her cousin, Jace, after the tragedy, Jayla was laid to rest in a pink and white coffin with words, tick-tock, and pop on it. The last child of room 112 was 10-year-old Eliana Torres. Eliana was born on January 12th, 2012, and she was known for her compassion and always putting others before herself. Her family nicknamed her Infirmarita, which means little nurse, because she always went around making sure everyone was taken care of, especially her grandparents. Her grandpa stated that she would accompany him on walks and always made sure he took his medication. Eliana was competitive and enjoyed playing softball, something that she had strived to be the best at. She was currently waiting to find out if she had made the all-star team. Her grandpa even hung a baseball on a string in their front yard for Eliana to swing on after school to practice her craft. Following her death, her coach would later state that Eliana was in fact chosen for the team, something she would have been really excited about. She also enjoyed spending time with the family cat Dexter and loved watching TikTok videos and learning the dances. She loved all things bright and beautiful, especially sunflowers and butterflies. Her family would later say, quote, Eliana had the most beautiful smile that could light up your soul. She was a loving and compassionate person who loved to be silly. Eliana was the master of jests and loved making people laugh, end quote. And the last two victims we want to talk about are the teachers of room 112, starting with 44-year-old Eva Morales. Eva was born on March 17, 1978 in Dallas, Texas. But not long after she was born, her family would move to Uvalde, where she spent the majority of her childhood. However, eventually her mom and two sisters would relocate to Eagle Pass. And that's where she would meet her future husband, Ruben Ruiz. Now, growing up, Eva was known to be quiet and shy, but also extremely studious. During her school years, she had a small, close-knit group of friends, and her mother admitted that she hardly ever acted out. Her younger sister, Maggie, said she was a really good student, a really good daughter. She was a quiet, timid person. She didn't give my mom trouble like my older sister and I did. Eva would graduate from Eagle Pass High School in 1996, and shortly after that, when she was just 19 years old, she would cross paths with the love of her life, Ruben Ruiz. They met at her cousin's graduation party at the Purple Sage Dance Hall, and immediately, the two were smitten. Not long after they met, the two would get married, and soon enough, Eva was pregnant with their daughter, Adeline. Now, Eva was a very dedicated woman who was balancing being a new mom and getting her degree. Eventually, she and Ruben would move back to Uvalde to get closer with family, and it's there where she continued her education at Southwest Texas Junior College and Sol Ross State University. 
Eva absolutely loved children, so becoming a teacher was an easy choice for her. But it wasn't her only passion. She also loved fitness. Eva enjoyed hiking, biking, running, and CrossFit competitions. But her family said that as she grew older, the once shy, reserved girl had blossomed into an independent and outgoing woman. Throughout her many years as an educator in Uvalde, Eva was an advocate for her students, and she always encouraged them. And they absolutely loved her. Her daughter said when they would go out in Uvalde, students would come running up to give her a hug. She also said her mom always wanted to make sure that her students were happy and taken care of. She was dedicated to her job. She was strong. I just really hoped to be exactly like her. On the day of the shooting, her daughter Adeline got the call about an active shooter, but she said, I wasn't really freaking out about my mom. I was freaking out about my dad. One of my worst fears was an active shooter, since my dad is an officer. That's what scared me the most. But soon enough, she saw a call coming in from her dad and a huge weight was lifted off of her. However, that relief didn't last long. Adeline quickly found out that her dad was okay, but her mom had been shot in her classroom. She said, My coworker drove me home to Uvalde, about an hour. It felt like the longest drive ever, just waiting and waiting. I texted my mom and said, You're going to be okay, mom. I love you so much. And that's the last thing I sent her before I found out she didn't make it. As we mentioned in last week's episode, Eva Morellis was alive for the majority of the shooting. And according to the surviving victims of Room 112, one of the last things she said before she died was that she wanted to speak to her daughter. She was her entire world. Adeline would later say, It's hard when the person that did everything for you, did everything with you, is not here anymore. It's hard to go on without her. I'm going to have to miss my mom longer than I've known her. I still have the rest of my life. And how am I supposed to do that without my mom? And something that we found was haunting was that at the beginning of the school year, Eva had written out a simple message that read, We have a wonderful year ahead of us. Sadly, that obviously wouldn't be the case. The last victim of this massacre is 48-year-old Irma Garcia. She was born on December 11, 1973 in San Antonio, Texas. In the mid-80s, her family relocated to Uvalde, where her father served as a principal at Benson Elementary School. Growing up, Irma was known as the nurturing sister who loved to cook for her family and take care of her younger siblings. Her older sister, Verma, said, quote, she was the caregiver. She made sure if there were any troubles that we made amends and were kind to each other. She always played fair. She was a really great sister, end quote. During her senior year of high school, Irma met a young man named Jose Garcia, who went by the name Joe. Irma thought he was really handsome, but she wasn't sure they would work out because he was so quiet. But she decided to go ahead and shoot her shot by giving him a piece of paper with her phone number on it. And after that, they were inseparable. Irma and Joe's love story is truly one of a kind. Joe even kept that piece of paper that Irma gave him in his wallet for 30 years. But after meeting the love of her life, Irma would attend Southwest Texas Junior College and then later transferred to Sol Ross State University to get her degree in education. She and Joe would end up getting married on June 28, 1997 and went on to raise four children, Christian, Jose, Liliana, and Alessandra. Friends and family all agreed that Irma and Joe's marriage was perfect. 
They enjoyed hosting parties on their five-acre property, and Irma and Joe could always be seen laughing and dancing together. The couple also loved to cook. Their dream was to one day own their own food truck. Irma's younger sister, Marissa, said, quote, that was what she was known for. If there was a gathering, Irma was right there making food for everybody, and she could do it all. Mexican, Italian, Chinese, American, baking, you name it, end quote. Now, her husband, Joe, had a job that required him to travel, but his kids said that he never let it interfere with his family time, and he always came home every single night to be with his wife and kids. Now, Irma Garcia and Ava Morales shared Classroom 112 for five years, and together, they were a wonderful team. Education specialist Natalie Arias said, quote, Ava Morales and Irma Garcia were two of the greatest teachers Uvalde, Texas has ever known. Their class was full of fun, growth, giggles, teamwork, and most of all, love, end quote. Which was true. Ava and Irma absolutely loved their students. So much so, when a gunman entered their classroom, they stood in front of the children, doing everything they could to protect them. And when the coroner walked into their classroom that day, Irma's body was found cradling some of her students. When her family found out that she was one of the victims of this massacre, they were devastated to say the least. Two days after the shooting, video showed her husband Joe arriving at Robb Elementary to drop off a bouquet of flowers for the memorial that had been set up. And the look on his face was heartbreaking. After dropping the flowers off, Joe would go back to his house, sit down on the couch, and then right then, two days after his wife's death, he would die of a heart attack. Family members would later say that Joe was so distraught over his wife's death, he died of a broken heart, which is yet another horrific part of this story. The official death count from the Uvalde massacre is 21 victims, but for the Garcia family, they believe it's 22. Sadly, their four children lost both parents in less than a week. Irma and Joe's love story was unlike any other. They were high school sweethearts. He carried around that piece of paper from Irma for 30 years, and their children said that nothing could have ever broken their love apart. Their youngest daughter said that if she could have one more moment with her parents, she would tell them that she was sorry for what happened. She said she would also give them one last big hug. After all of the victims of the Uvalde school shooting were identified, the world began to hear their names. They began to see their pictures. And once again, we were reminded of the evil in this world. How could anyone walk into an elementary school and kill innocent children? And how can we as a nation allow this to keep happening? Soon enough, politicians were going to have to answer these questions. Hours after the massacre, President Joe Biden addressed the nation with this message. Good evening, fellow Americans. I had hoped when I became president, I would not have to do this again. Another massacre, Uvalde, Texas, an elementary school, 
beautiful, innocent, second, third, fourth graders. <clears throat> and how many scores of little children who witnessed what happened see their friends die as if they're on a battlefield, for God's sake. <clears throat> They'll live with it the rest of their lives. There's a lot we don't know yet. There's a lot we do know. The parents who will never see their child again, never have them jump in bed and cuddle with them. <clears throat> parents will never be the same. To lose a child is like having a piece of your soul ripped away. There's a hollowness in your chest. You feel like you're being sucked into it and never going to be able to get out, suffocating. It's never quite the same. <clears throat> it's a feeling shared by the siblings and the grandparents and the family members and the community that's left behind. As a nation, we have to ask, when in God's name are we going to stand up to the gun lobby? When in God's name we do what we all know in our gut needs to be done? It's been 3,448 3, days, 10 years since I stood up at a high school in Connecticut, a grade school in Connecticut, where another gunman ma massacred 26 people, including 20 first graders at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Since then, there have been over 900 incidents of gunfires reported on school grounds. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Santa Fe High School in Texas. Oxford High School in Michigan. The list goes on and on, and the list grows when it includes mass shootings at places like movie theaters, houses of worship, as we saw just 10 days ago at a grocery store in Buffalo, New York. I am sick and tired of it. We have to act. And don't tell me we can't have an impact on this carnage. Governor Greg Abbott also addressed Texans with this message. But the reality is as horrible as what happened. It could have been worse. The reason it was not worse is because law enforcement officials did what they do. They showed amazing courage by running toward gunfire for the singular purpose of trying to save lives. It could have been worse, he said. I remember hearing this back in 2022, and I was just filled with rage. Regardless of your political stance, it is incredibly insensitive to say it could have been worse when 19 children and two teachers were slaughtered in their elementary school. I'm sorry, but there is quite literally nothing worse than that. Abbott also commends the Uvalde police officers, saying that they ran towards the gunfire to save lives, when that's not at all what happened. 
In reality, the officers on scene waited around in the hallway for over an hour while 10 and 11-year-olds were being murdered, while some of the victims were bleeding out and likely died as a result of their inaction. So no, it couldn't have been worse. If the police would have done their jobs that day, less people would have died. It would have been better. And soon enough, the entire nation was about to learn the horrific details of the police response that day. When the nation learned that it took 77 minutes for police to breach the classrooms while children were inside pleading for help, the nation was disgusted. And even more so when video came out showing officers standing in the hallway on their cell phones, others using hand sanitizer, all while children were dying just feet away. Now, initially, of course, the Uvalde police didn't want to admit any wrongdoing. In fact, during a press conference, Stephen McGraw from the Texas Department of Public Safety adamantly defended his department, saying this. But I can tell you this right now, DPS as an institution, okay, right now, is did not fail the community, plain and simple. Stephen McGraw also placed blame on speech therapist Amy Marine. If you remember, she was the teacher who ran out of the school after she heard the crash. Video from that day shows that she had propped open the door with a rock. But when she saw the gunman, she ran back inside and video shows her kick the rock out of the way before shutting the door. Now, like we mentioned, that door was supposed to lock automatically, but it didn't. So that would be the school's fault, not Amy's. However, during the initial press conference, Stephen McGraw basically told the media that she was the reason the gunman got into the school. Bottom line is, we reported what happened. That back door was propped open. It wasn't supposed to be propped open. It was supposed to be locked. And, and certainly the teacher that went back for her cell phone, it propped it open again. So that was an access point that the subject used. As you can imagine, when Amy heard this, she was devastated. Not only were the claims completely false, but now her community was partially blaming her for what happened. Now, officials would later correct this by saying that the door was not propped open, like they initially said. But by then, Amy felt like the damage had already been done. She was considered a villain in her own community. She now suffers from severe anxiety and depression, and even developed a stutter after everything happened. But after the truth came out, she received an outpouring of love and support from people all over the nation, and she was happy to have her name cleared. Now, the Uvalde CISD police officers had been trained for an active shooter scenario by the Alert Center, which is described by the FBI as the national standard in active shooter response training. And I'm going to give you a little cliff notes on what exactly these officers were taught to do during an active shooting. And the very first step is to establish an incident commander who would be the person in charge that day. In this case... That person was supposed to be Police Chief Pete Arredondo, but like we mentioned, they never established an incident commander throughout the entire shooting, which is why there was so much miscommunication. Police Chief Pete Arredondo would later respond to this, saying, While you're in there, you don't title yourself. I know our policy states you're the incident commander. My approach and thought was responding as a police officer, and so I didn't title myself. According to the alert training, after you've established an incident commander, the next step is to, quote, stop the killing 
and then stop the dying, form a contact team, and make entry, end quote. This next part is very important, and it says, quote, enter solo if backup is not immediately available and there is evidence of an active killing. Move tactically and quickly to locate and eliminate the threat. Once the threat is eliminated, provide medical care to the critically wounded, end quote. Now, the police claim that they didn't enter right away because they thought the shooter was barricaded in a room by himself. But then they learned that children were indeed in the classroom and that many people had been shot. In Chloe Torres' 911 call, she said she was in room 112 and there were a lot of bodies. So they knew there were victims in the room with the gunmen. So after figuring this out, according to their training, they were supposed to immediately go in and take down the shooter, even if backup hadn't arrived. But they didn't do this. They waited around like cowards. Now, the next excuse they gave as to why they didn't breach the classrooms was because they said they were waiting around on a key so they could unlock the classroom door. Now, the police didn't know this at the time because they never checked, but the classroom door was already unlocked. But even if it wasn't, the alert training says that in the event the key is not located, quote, law enforcement responders should use another technique to enter the area without delay, end quote. But again, they didn't do this. Chief Arredondo would later say this. I knew those doors. Those doors opened outward. They're thick, heavy doors with a metal frame. As police officers used to going to a residence and you kick in doors. That's just such a common thing in our business. You didn't have that option here. But again, the door to room 111 wasn't even locked. So they spent over an hour trying to find keys for an unlocked door. What a waste of time. Even further, no one even attempted to contact the principal or the head janitor who had a master key. They also could have gained entry to the classroom through the window. But instead of doing any of that, they just waited around for 77 minutes while children died. The Uvalde CISD Police Department hosted several active shooter trainings, the most recent being on March 22nd, just two months before the massacre. In a Facebook post, the Uvalde School District said, quote, our overall goal is to train every Uvalde area law enforcement officer so that we can prepare as best as possible for any situation that may arise, end quote. But clearly they weren't prepared. And on that day, the Uvalde police officers ignored all protocol that they were taught in their training. Yet still, in the days after the massacre, they refused to admit any wrongdoing. However, soon enough, details slowly started to come out and they began to face a lot of scrutiny it wouldn't be until three days after the shooting when they finally admitted their faults. Stephen McGraw would later say, from the benefit of hindsight where I'm sitting right now, of course it was not the right decision. It was the wrong decision, period. There's no excuse for that. In response to not breaching the classrooms, he said, when it comes to an active shooter, you don't have to wait on tactical gear, plain and simple. At the end of the day, no one could understand how nearly 400 police officers were on scene that day, and not one of them decided to go into those classrooms. 
And look, I have all the respect in the world for law enforcement. I'm so thankful that we have members of our society that put their lives on the line every single day to keep our community safe. It's a job that I could never do. I also understand that these officers have their own families. They don't want to lose their lives. And running towards someone with an AR-15 goes against every instinct within us. But at the end of the day, that's the job they signed up for. And if you are not willing to take action in these types of scenarios, then do not sign up to be a police officer. I also understand that there is a chain of command they had to follow that day. And as a cop, you have to follow orders. But sometimes you also have to make a judgment call. There were so many officers heard on body cam footage saying things like, why aren't we going in there? We're taking too long. Kids are dying. It's shocking to me that not one single officer said, screw this, give me a rifle, I'm going in there. Like we mentioned in last week's episode, I guarantee you every single one of those parents waiting outside of Rob Elementary would have gone into those classrooms without hesitation. Strangers who didn't even have children at the school would have done the same. So why did the police not have the same attitude? To this day, many officers still stick to their story that they were under the impression that it was a barricaded subject and not an active shooter. However, in Chloe Torres's 911 call, she said there's a lot of bodies. Her call also proved that many, if not all of the officers were aware that the gunman was in a classroom full of teachers and students. And it is believed that their inaction that day led to the deaths of at least four victims, Jackie Cazares, Xavier Lopez, Jose Flores, and teacher Ava Morales all had heartbeats when they were pulled out of those classrooms. All four were also shot within the first few minutes of the shooting, meaning they held on to life for over an hour until they couldn't anymore. It's horrifying to think about how they would still likely be here today if the police would have done their jobs. The Texas House of Representatives Investigative Committee would later say, quote, at Robb Elementary, law enforcement responders failed to adhere to their active shooter training, and they failed to prioritize saving innocent lives over their own safety, end quote. And to make matters worse, the city of Uvalde tried extremely hard to prevent the police records and surveillance camera footage from being released to the public. Also, remember that mom who ran into the school to grab her children? The one who the police handcuffed outside of Robb Elementary? Well, she was actually on probation for something she did years back. She was also very vocal about the police inaction that day. And a couple days after the shooting, she got a call from law enforcement telling her that if she keeps talking to the media, they'll arrest her for obstruction of justice. Now, a judge would later hear this, and he actually rewarded her bravery and shortened her probation. As you can see, Uvalde officials were trying really hard to keep things in the dark. They also knew that their actions that day would receive heavy criticism. And it did. Their community, along with the rest of the nation, was outraged, especially because Police Chief Pete Arredondo had just been elected to the city council, and the citizens of Uvalde wanted him to step down. Soon after the shooting, protesters took to the streets with signs that read, Bravery called and wants its badge back. Protected serve. Who? Yourself? Why are you hiding? Release the body cam footage. Their blood is on Pete's hands. 
the cowardice of a few costs the lives of many. Here's Brett Cross, who is protesting for his nephew, Uzziah Garcia. He felt our community. He, he just felt us all, and he needs to go. He, he just felt us all, and he needs to go. But Pete wouldn't be fired immediately. In fact, the city of Uvalde announced that they were considering putting him on a leave of absence. But usually, that means it's a paid leave, and the citizens of Uvalde weren't happy with that. Uvalde CISD would have a school board meeting where members of the community could share their thoughts. And here's what Caitlin Gonzalez had to say. I'm here today to make a statement. If a law enforcement's job is to protect and serve, why didn't they protect and serve my friends and teachers on May 24th? I have messages for Pete Arredondo and all the law enforcement that were there that date. Turn in your badge and step down. You don't deserve to wear one. That video just brings tears to my eyes every single time. And what a brave little girl for speaking out. Now, Pete would eventually get fired in August of 2022. In a later interview, he would admit that when they first arrived on scene, he could hear gunshots and the gunman reloading behind the door. And instead of acting... He, quote, backed off and started taking cover. We're going to get scrutinized. I'm expecting that. Uh, we're going to get scrutinized. Why we didn't go in there? Uh, I, I know what the firepower he had based on what shells I saw, the holes in the wall and the room next to his. I also know I had students that were around there that weren't the immediate threat besides the ones that I know were the immediate threat and the preservation of life around everything around him, I felt was priority. Pete Arredondo would eventually admit that this was a fatal mistake. However, his attorney would tell the media that they believed he was a fall guy and said the shooter is the only real person to blame here. Now, the news of Pete Arredondo getting fired was a relief to many. However, some couldn't understand why it took nearly three months to do so, and Pete wasn't the only person who lost his job. In total, five police officers were fired or forced to resign, including a woman named Crimson Elizondo, who was one of the first responding officers that day. She was overheard on body cam footage saying, if my son had been in there, I would not have been outside. I promise you that. Many people in Uvalde were surprised that more officers weren't fired. There were plenty of others who failed to take action, but they still work for law enforcement to this day. Brett Cross, Uzziah Garcia's uncle, said, quote, anyone who knew and sat there and listened to him reload they should all lose their jobs. Anybody who made an order that they shouldn't go in should face possible jail time, end quote. Xavier Lopez was another murder victim, and his mom, Felicia, told the Washington Post that she still sees many of these officers out in public. They shop at the same grocery stores. Some are umpires for softball games, and others are neighbors. But she said, quote, When we see them, they put their heads down. They know they did wrong and wish they could go back and do it over again, end quote. Felicia actually had family members who responded to the shooting, including officer Daniel Coronado, who we mentioned a lot in part two. But after the shooting, they have no communication. She would later say, quote, they try to say hi, but I want nothing to do with them, end quote. The police inaction caused a huge rift within their community. 
a rift that will take a while to repair. But the police aren't the only ones who face scrutiny. Another person that got a lot of criticism was Rob Elementary's principal, Mandy Gutierrez. Like we mentioned, Arnie Reyes, the teacher of room 111, said that he had complained several times about how his classroom door didn't lock, but it never got fixed. Now, Mandy Gutierrez claimed that his lock was fixed the night before the shooting, but clearly that wasn't the case since it wasn't working hours later. And according to teachers and parents, it was a known thing that Rob Elementary was not very secure. Although the doors were always supposed to be locked, many people said they could easily get into the building through unlocked doors without anyone even noticing. And several parents even brought these concerns to the principal, but nothing was ever done. And in this day and age, that is incredibly irresponsible. There are a lot of things wrong with the frequency of mass shootings. There is absolutely no excuse as to why schools shouldn't be following protocol and locking their doors. Now, even further, and I'm not saying this is Mandy's fault, but because the school had really poor Wi-Fi, the alert that she sent out about the active shooter didn't get to the teachers in time. In fact, Arnie Reyes never got the alert. So he and his class literally had seconds to prepare. The Texas House of Representatives Investigative Committee would later say that there were, quote, systematic failures and egregious poor decision-making by everyone involved who was in a position of power, end quote. They also said, quote, Rob Elementary did not adequately prepare for the risk of an armed intruder on campus, end quote. For example, the teachers were instructed to put their children under their desks if an intruder came in. However, this doesn't make a lot of sense because you can still see the children under their desks if the shooter were to look through the window of the classroom door. Getting under your desk is something you do in a tornado or an earthquake, not a school shooting. So that means that the teachers and students didn't even have the correct training for an active shooter scenario. Principal Mandy Gutierrez would be suspended with pay from her position at Rob and then later reassigned to another position within the Uvalde CISD. She would also face a lot of criticism on how safety was handled inside the building, but she disagreed with what others had to say about her. In a later interview, she said, I live with the horror of these events for the rest of my life. I want to keep my job not only so that I can provide for my family, but so that I can continue to be on the front lines helping children who survived, the families of all affected and the entire Uvalde community that I love and want to continue to protect. It was also discovered that there was a flawed medical response at the scene as well. Like we mentioned last week, some of the injured students were put on school buses instead of ambulances. AJ Martinez, who was a survivor of Room 112, was shot in the leg. When his parents saw him come out of the school covered in blood, they tried to go over to him, but the police wouldn't let them. And then they watched as their injured son got onto a school bus. The police would later tell them that the ambulances were reserved for deceased children, which doesn't make any sense. As all these details came to light, it became very clear that the town of Uvalde was not prepared for a mass shooting. The police weren't prepared. The schools weren't prepared. No one was prepared. And like we say all the time, there's always this collective thought that this kind of stuff won't happen to you. 
It's the kind of stuff you see on the news, but it doesn't happen in places like Uvalde. But then it does happen, and it tears through a community in so many ways. On May 26, Uvalde's newspaper, the Uvalde News Leader, published a powerful article titled City Soul Crushed. The high school graduation ceremony that was set to take place on Friday, May 27th, was postponed. And the Uvalde CISD school superintendent, Hall Harrell, said, quote, My heart is broken today. We are a small community and we are going to need your prayers to get through this. End quote. In the days after the shooting, the entire nation grieved with Uvalde. It was a horrific minder of the evils that walk this earth. However, in the midst of all this tragedy, anger, and heartbreak, the town of Uvalde came together like never before. At Robb Elementary, 21 white crosses were placed at the front of the school, each bearing the name of a victim who died there. Around the crosses were hundreds and hundreds of flowers, stuffed animals, pictures, candles, and balloons. And in front of the memorial, written in chalk, are the words, Protect Our Children. There were also prayer circles, food drives, fundraisers, and millions of dollars raised in GoFundMes for the victims' families. After the shooting, people from all over America came by the small town to pay their respects, and the phrase Uvalde Strong was everywhere. Two of the funeral homes in town also decided to cover the cost of all the victims' funerals, and over the course of the next few weeks, a dark, somber cloud hung over Uvalde as the children and teachers were laid to rest. Father Eduardo Morales of Sacred Heart Catholic Church wanted the families to remember and celebrate the lives of each person. He said, You will hear me say it at every funeral mass that I hope their tears of sadness will become tears of joy, that they remember their children and allow them to continue to live, because if you're only coming to celebrate a death, you're never going to find happiness. We're here to celebrate their life. Soon enough, all 21 victims were laid to rest. But there's always this hollowness after you buried a loved one. It seems as though the rest of the world moves on with their lives and you're still completely broken. Many of the victims' families went through all of the emotions. And once they came to terms with their new reality, they were angry. How could someone within their own community cause this much damage? Soon enough, details of the gunmen started to come to light as well. And as if this story couldn't get any more heartbreaking, they learned that 18-year-old Salvador Ramos checked all of the warning signs. He abused animals, threatened to rape and murder people online, and he told multiple people across many social media platforms that he was gearing up for something big. The people that knew him called him a school shooter before the massacre even happened. And he even told his friends the exact date for when he would, quote, be famous, which is yet another horrific part of this story. So many people saw these concerning behaviors and no one said anything, which is sadly the case for a lot of school shootings. According to the sandyhookpromise.org, quote, in four out of five school shootings, at least one other person had knowledge of the attacker's plan, but failed to report it. It also says, quote, almost all school shooters shared threatening or concerning messages or images. More than 75% raised concern from others prior to the attack. 
bystanders saw warning signs in most documented active shooter cases, end quote. This is especially heartbreaking because it means it can all be prevented. If you hear a disturbed individual talking about gearing up for something big or making concerning threats online, please say something. If all of the people who were concerned about Salvador's behavior said something to the police, this could have been prevented, but it wasn't. After shooting his grandma in the face that day, she would actually somehow walk over to her neighbor's house and call for help, but it was too late. Salvador had already stolen her truck and was on his way to do what he had planned to do for months. And I was thinking about this the other day, but imagine how many more lives would have been lost if he didn't crash his truck into that drainage ditch that day. I mean, as soon as he crashed, multiple people called 911 and he spent several minutes outside firing shots at people. So that gave some of the teachers and students a few more minutes to prepare. I just can't even imagine how many victims there would have been if he just pulled right up to the school and blindsided everyone. Now, believe it or not, one of the classrooms he shot up, room 111, was actually his former fourth grade classroom, the same class where he was allegedly bullied. In fact, his fourth grade teacher was actually teaching in the building that day, but she obviously had moved to a different classroom. Another eerie part of this story is that Salvador had dropped out of school the year prior and his graduating class actually walked the halls of Robb Elementary earlier that morning. It's this tradition schools do where seniors walk the halls of their elementary school in their cap and gown and the little kids cheer them on with encouraging signs. They do this so the seniors can look back at their education, but it also encourages the elementary school kids to stay in school so that one day they too will graduate. It's suspected that Salvador thought his graduating class would be there that day when he shot up the school. So not only would he be murdering children, but he would also get to murder some of his old classmates. But I think this all goes to show how sick this individual truly was. And the fact that he played in the victim's blood and shouted out horribly disgusting things before he shot people It's truly so scary that there are people like him in this world. Now, like we mentioned, Salvador never really had a relationship with his dad, and his mom had a criminal history as well as a history of drug abuse. In fact, about seven months after the massacre, she was arrested in Oklahoma for domestic violence, threatening to kill somebody, actually. And it seems as if she caused a lot of issues in Uvalde. Right after the shooting, she spoke with the media and said, I have no words. I have no words to say because I don't know what he was thinking. He had his reasons for doing what he did. And please don't judge him. I just want to the innocent children who died, forgive me. Forgive me. Forgive my son. I know he had his reasons. And I get that she probably just didn't know what to say at that moment. I also understand she is grieving. But saying he had his reasons is so insensitive. A couple of months after the shooting, one of the victim's parents ran into her in town and some heated words were exchanged. Adriana even told the victim's parents, quote, you have no right to judge my son, 
Here is that video. Los gritos fueron aumentando de tono. And surprisingly, Salvador's mom actually buried him in a cemetery outside of San Antonio, which is extremely rare. Now, his grave doesn't have his actual name, but rather his nickname, which is Lonnie. His tombstone reads Lonnie, May 16th, 2004. You're our angel in heaven. We will never stop loving you. Rest in peace and be with God, our beloved son, brother, and grandson. His mom also spoke with the media and said that she is confident her son is in heaven, saying, quote, my son's spirit is in heaven. I also feel his spirit is with me as well. I believe God has forgiven him for what he did. The only people who were in hell are the ones who betrayed Jesus. So yeah, if heaven is a place where Salvador Ramos is welcomed, then I don't wanna go. But now that we've got that part of the story over with, let's circle back to what actually matters, which are the victims. Another heartbreaking part of this story has to do with the survivors of room 111 and 112. Many of them had been shot that day, but would live. Over time, their physical wounds healed, but the emotional wounds will last much longer. After the shooting, psychologists around Texas provided counseling to the survivors and said they are displaying an assortment of reactions to the tragedy, including confusion, disorientation, emotional shutdown, and feelings of panic. The team plans to strengthen the community long-term, saying, We don't just want to put a band-aid over it and leave. We need to create a trauma-informed community, because the situation doesn't end once the traumatic event is over. AJ Martinez was shot in the leg, and to this day, he still walks with a limp. Shortly after the shooting, his mom Cassandra took him to the movies, wanting to take his mind off everything. However, she quickly realized it was a huge mistake. The loud music and sound effects coming from the theater speakers sent AJ into a panic and they had to leave. Jordan Olivares was a survivor of Room 112 who managed to walk away uninjured. In Charlie Men's documentary, Jordan was asked how he thought he survived that day. And he said, quote, just my friends and my grandpa watching over me, end quote. Jordan's mom, Virginia, told the documentary that her son watched many of his classmates die that day. And through tears, she said, quote, I thank God every day that he's alive. I mean, the fear that ran through my body that day, I still feel it every day. It's become to where any little thing that he does makes me emotional. Seeing him play football makes me emotional. Seeing him ride a bike makes me emotional because I just think about what if, end quote. But a piece of Jordan's innocence was lost that day. Virginia said that Jordan used to be a very carefree child, but now he is constantly preoccupied on what he would do in an active shooter situation. She said he constantly asks, mom, where do we go if someone tries to attack us? In which direction? Something no little kid should ever have to worry about. 10-year-old Noah Arona had been shot in the back, and like most of the injured children in that room, he couldn't even cry because the gunman would hear him. 
Imagine getting shot with a rifle as a 10-year-old, and because the police won't come in to save you, you can't even cry. His mom would later tell CNN that while Noah waited around for the police, one of the little girls he was lying by, all he could hear was her gurgling because she was trying to breathe, but she couldn't because she was shot, and you could just hear her choking, she said, which is something he will remember for the rest of his life. His mom said he can't enjoy the 4th of July because of fireworks. He can't enjoy a family barbecue because the smell of smoke brings him back to that day in the classroom. His mom would later say, You would think things are getting back to normal, as people assume they are. Just because my son is alive in here, but it's not like that. My son has trouble sleeping, being in a big crowd, anything loud scares him, being by himself. Of course, we feel blessed because he is here, but every day it's a struggle. Our children are not the same anymore. They're not like they used to be. Samuel Salinas was also in room 112 and watched many of his friends and classmates die. His father told Charlie Men that his son suffers from survivor's guilt, saying, quote, he saw blood being splattered everywhere, on the walls, floors, kids full of blood, and he had nothing, no power to do anything to save them, end quote. His dad said that before the shooting, Samuel was a happy child with a ton of energy. He was talkative and could easily carry conversations with strangers, but not anymore. Since the shooting, Samuel is more withdrawn. He's weary of strangers and he faces a lot of inner turmoil. And then at night, Samuel has nightmares. He sometimes dreams about being chased by the gunmen who murdered his friends and teachers. In other dreams, the shooter isn't chasing him at all. He's just standing there, shooting bullets into Samuel's body. Survivor Chloe Torres, who was the little girl who called 911 that day, was also shot during the shooting. A bullet grazed her thyroid, and she had shrapnel wounds. Now, if you remember, in the 911 call, Chloe told the dispatch, my dad taught me what to do in these types of situations, which was true. Chloe's dad would later tell Charlie Min... We are very grateful that we've had talks about the shootings and that's been going on around our nation. We do a lot of dry runs or what ifs. What would you do if you were in this situation? And when we would speak about those scenarios, she would sometimes tell me that she would freeze. But on that day, May 24th, 2022, at the hospital, one of the first things she told me was that she didn't freeze that day. Chloe Torres was one of the heroes of the story. But like the other survivors of Room 112, she has a lot of PTSD. Her dad says that she doesn't like big crowds, loud noises scare her, and when they go out, she's constantly scared someone's going to come into the room and harm them. Another survivor of Room 112 was Maya Zamora. Maya was shot seven times in the chest, back, arms, and hands. After getting pulled from her classroom that day, she was transported to University Hospital in San Antonio, where she would stay for the next two months, undergoing more than 60 surgeries. But eventually, her wounds would start healing, and she would finally get to come home. Her family ended up moving from Uvalde. The memories there were just too much to bear. They do hope to move back one day, but until then, Maya spends her days painting a new hobby she picked up after the shooting. Her dad told the media, quote, I don't think there's enough paint in Hobby Lobby for Maya. I guess that's her getaway. They also said that therapy has really helped, but she still faces survivor's guilt 
and her parents said she cries a lot. Like the other survivors, Maya is more reserved after the shooting and a lot more fearful. She too stays away from fireworks, movies with gunfire, and large crowds. Her mom said, quote, she shows a lot of fear of this world that she never had before, end quote. Since the shooting on May 24th, 2022, the town of Uvalde has done its best to heal from this tragedy. And the way that they do that is by sticking together as a community and remembering the victims. Downtown, a huge mural was painted, showing the faces of each of the victims. The art teacher who organized it, named Abel Ortiz Acosta, said, The downtown has been turned into this open-air gallery, educating people not only about the kids, but their stories and their lives. We're never going to forget them, their faces. That's why they had to be portraits. The murals provide a place where the families can celebrate. Another part of their healing process is moving forward. But that's hard to do when you drive through town and see Robb Elementary. The building serves as a horrible reminder of that day. So the town of Uvalde has announced that they'll tear down the school and rebuild a new one. The new building will have extra security and a beautiful metal tree near the library to memorialize the lives of the 21 victims. Another part of healing is making a difference so that no other town has to go through what Uvalde went through. However, like with every mass shooting, our politicians give their thoughts and prayers and then they do absolutely nothing to change it. This next part is going to piss some people off. So if you're already a little triggered, save yourself the energy, turn this podcast off. But in the past, we have tried to leave politics out because anytime we mention anything, people get upset. They tell us, stick to the facts, leave politics out. And if you don't, you're going to lose me as a listener. And for years, we have listened to those comments out of fear of upsetting anyone. But I don't care anymore. If you choose to stop listening to us for this, we are okay with that. But I think it is incredibly irresponsible of us to be telling these stories on our platform while grazing over the fact that firearms are the leading cause of death for children and teens in the United States. We've also mentioned in the past that we don't think the government should go through and take everyone's guns away, but we are definitely for stricter gun laws. In the case of the Uvalde school shooting, it is absolutely disgusting that a monster like this was able to obtain a rifle as easily as he did, especially with all of the warning signs he had before the shooting. Salvador Ramos bought the rifle used in the massacre just days after his 18th birthday. People can't legally drink at 18 because their brains aren't fully developed, but yet they're allowed to buy firearms that can wipe out an entire room in seconds. Keep in mind, this is the same man who everyone called school shooter, a man who threatened to rape and murder people, someone who made multiple threats that he was gearing up for something big, and someone who live streamed videos of him holding a bag of dead cats. In what world is he allowed to get his hands on this type of weapon? Many of the people who lost a child in the Uvalde school shooting are proud gun owners. And even they agree that the age to buy certain semi-automatic rifles should be raised from 18 to 21, with the exception of people in law enforcement or the military, which is exactly what House Bill 2744 is all about. 
The bill was first introduced in February of 2023, and many of the Uvalde victims' families fought hard to get this bill passed. In fact, some even went to the Capitol to testify in front of Texas lawmakers. However, when they got there, they had to wait outside for over 13 hours until they finally let them in to hear their testimony. So here are what some of those parents had to say. As a parent, enough is enough. Please do something. I don't want you to have to identify your child's body based on what he was wearing to school that day. We do everything to protect these guns. Let's just try something to protect our children. My name is Javier Casares from Valley, Texas. My daughter is Jackie Casares. I go back to the the day, the first day seeing my daughter in her little white dress laying in that coffin. I begin to wonder what might be right through her mind in her voice. I'm confused. Where are all the sadness? Why all the sadness in my family's faces? and the continuous crying of others as they pass me one by one. What did I do wrong? I try to tell everyone that I'm okay. I raise my voice louder and louder, but no response. Why can't anyone hear me? Is it because of the loud noises that came into my classroom? Or is it the long beep The long beat coming from the heart monitor. My baby girl is full of life and love. She never learned how, she never learned how to ride her bike. Never made it to the fifth grade. Will never experience her fifteenth birthday, prom, graduation from high school, college, and becoming a vet, visiting Paris, or even falling in love because she was taking me. She was taken by being brutally murdered at nine years old along with her 18 classmates and two teachers, but an 18-year-old gunman. We're here to support HB 2744 and raising the age from 18 to 21 to purchase an assault rifle. We believe, I believe, and I, I believe many Texans, you know, that this will have some type of effect in stopping future mass shootings. We're not here to take anyone's guns away. That, that's that's far from the truth. I'm a gun owner. I believe in the Second Amendment, right? I'm a concealed carrier. So, again, we're not here for that. All we are asking is for is real, reasonable common gun sense laws. My daughter here next to me was trying to buy super glue at Walmart the other day and was flagged for being under 18. But this kid was able to buy an AR-15 back-to-back, 1,000 rounds of ammo, bulletproof vest, 60 rounds of mags. I mean, what's wrong with this picture? I don't want you to see what I saw. I saw my nine-year-old daughter draped in a white sheet, cold and alone in an operating room. I saw the wound that took her life. I don't want any of y'all to see that. We need to change these laws. 
please have an open mind and please pass again pass this law. My name is Kimberly Rubio. I am the mother of Lexi Rubio, the victim of the Rob Elementary shooting in Uvalde. I arrived here today at 8 a.m. And as we waited more than 13 hours, I'm reminded of May 24th, 2022, when we waited hours to be told our daughter would never come home. I expressed confusion then, and I'm perplexed now. Did you think we would go home? Chairman King, thank you for filing the bill and for everything you've done for the families in our community. Every day since May 24th, 2022, I replay alternate scenarios in my head. Scenarios in which Lexi is still with us today. What if I kept her in the district's dual language program and she would have been at Anthony Elementary that day? What if she'd caught a stomach bug that week instead of the previous and she'd have been homesick? What if I'd taken her home after the 10.30 a.m. award ceremony? Then she'd have been safe and sound at my great-grandma's house. Standing before you today, I wonder if on May 24th, you watched coverage of Uvalde unfold and wondered what you could have done to prevent this tragedy. Did you look at images of children running for their lives and think... What if we had enacted stricter gun laws? Did you consider the children still inside? Those like our daughter who would never emerge? Did you imagine what it would feel like to bury your child? Sit with that image as we do. Because only when you imagine will you as Texas lawmakers take necessary action, including voting for House Bill 2744. Had this bill been the law in the state of Texas one year ago, the gunman would not have been able to purchase the semi-automatic weapon he used to murder our daughter and 20 others eight days after his 18th birthday. It's too late for us. No action you take will bring back our daughter. But you do have the opportunity to honor Lexi's life and legacy by voting for House Bill 2744 which will make our community safer and save lives. Mr. Chairman, to conclude, I have one ask of you in this committee. Allow this committee to vote on House Bill 2744. I have hope that collectively you will have the will, the courage, the judgment, and the strength to do what is just and right. Our hearts may be broken, but our resolve has never been stronger. 21 for 21, let's raise the age. Veronica Mata, whose daughter Tess died at Robb Elementary, said, Tess didn't have a choice in life or death, but you as leaders have a choice of what my daughter's life will be remembered for. Will she die in vain, or will her life have saved another child? Maybe your child. And there were even Republicans who supported this bill. Justin Holland was one who voted to pass House Bill 2744, and he would say, I'm not naive enough to think that laws alone will prevent the type of senseless violence that occurs all too frequently in our state. But after listening to many hours of testimony over this session, I became convinced that this small change to the law might serve as a significant roadblock to a young person, not old enough to buy tobacco or alcohol, from acquiring a specific type of semi-automatic rifle, intent upon using it in a destructive and illegal manner. But sadly... 
The bill never made it to the House and Senate, so here we are again, back at square one. You know, the other day I was sitting on my couch finishing up this story when I heard sirens outside of my window. So I looked on social media and saw that a mass shooting took place at Lakewood Church here in Houston. Now I'm not associated with the church, but I do live about a minute away from it. And as I see all of the helicopters and news crews, I just kind of had this very surreal moment. Here I am on my couch working on the Uvalde mass shooting, one of the worst stories we've ever covered. And there's literally a mass shooting happening right down the street for me. And I just thought to myself, what the hell is going on? What is this world we live in? And why isn't anyone doing anything about it? In that shooting, the woman had a long history of mental illness and arrests, but she was still able to legally buy a rifle. Unlike in this case, she posted alarming messages on her social media. Yet another example of how these types of firearms are getting in the hands of the absolutely wrong people. You know, there is this back and forth argument that has really divided our country. One part says that guns are the problem and the other says that it's not guns, it's mental health. And I believe it's both. I do think that we need stricter gun laws like raising the age from 18 to 21 for buying rifles. But I also think we need funding for mental health. Politicians in Texas love to say that mental health is solely to blame, but Texas ranks last in all 50 states for mental health funding. So if mental health really is to blame, then why aren't we doing anything about it? In 2019, a gunman walked into a Walmart in El Paso and he murdered 23 people. In response, Texas's governor, Greg Abbott, went on and on about how guns weren't the problem but he said he was going to create a task force to address the rise of mass shootings. And he did. However, the task force met just two times and then never met again. And look, I'm not saying I have all the answers, but something has to be done. If we aren't going to make stricter gun laws, then every single school in the nation needs to be protected from these monsters. The crime scene photos I found from this case are some of the most disturbing photos I have ever seen in my life. The amount of blood and carnage in those pictures will make you sick. It's a sick reminder of what happens when these guns get into the hands of the wrong people. It's a sick reminder of what happens when our schools aren't secure and when our police officers don't do their jobs. But Americans need to work together and we need to compromise. Because while we stand back pointing fingers, fighting over who is right, children will continue to die. And you can only hope that it doesn't happen in your town, to your community, or to someone you know. If you want to help protect children from gun violence, please consider joining, signing the petition, or donating to the Sandy Hook Promise, which envisions a future where children are free from shootings, and acts of violence on their schools, homes, and communities. Courtney and I are also going to make a donation to the Child Life Disaster Relief, which provides professional services to children after disasters to help with their emotional needs. Research shows that many chronic health issues, both mental and physical, are seen in children even years after a catastrophic event. And when children don't receive support in a timely manner, it can have long-term negative effects. 
which is exactly why we're donating to the Child Life Disaster Relief, because they work to give children the tools and support needed, so that after these disasters, they can properly heal. This is incredibly important work, so if you can, please join us in supporting them. We'll link the Child Life Disaster Relief and the Sandy Hook Promise in the description of our podcast. And now to end our podcast, I'm just going to include 21 seconds of silence, each second representing a victim of this shooting who passed away that day. I want all of you listening to this show to really, after listening to this series on this event, take a few moments of silence and think to yourself, what can we change? What can we do? And help us honor the victim's in whatever way that you can. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Murder in America. This is the third and final part of our Uvalde series. Thank you to everybody who has supported these really tough episodes to write and get through. I can't imagine. Obviously, it's so hard to even discuss this stuff. I definitely teared up a few times while reading this, but these are conversations we definitely need to have in this country. It's just, yeah, I mean, I could talk all day, but I'm not going to bore you guys. I'm here to make an announcement we are taking next week off of the podcast. Courtney and I are going on our first real vacation in a really long time, so we're not going to be home next week, and we're deciding to take the week off to just relax and enjoy. But I want to thank some of our new patrons this week, Demi, Jesse, Yasmin Morales, Amy Barker, TJ Adams, Carla Catalan, Hannah Terwilliger, Tegan Blackbear, Jamie Lee, Jezebel Mattis, Jennifer Lynn, Addie Ray, Kayla Dempsey, Alicia and Judd Maddox, Connor Byer, Sydney Gray, Alexis, Isabel Cortman, Nikki Kay, and Lacey Valentine. So many new patrons, guys. So if you love the show and you want to help support our work, just head to patreon.com for $5 a month. You get access to every episode of our show early and ad free for $10 a month. You get early and ad free plus two full length bonus episodes of murder in America. And for $20 a month, you get a bonus episode of the show every single week of the month. So if you like listening to our show, I would highly recommend signing up because you get two episodes a week to listen to and they're full length, exactly like the ones that we drop on our main feed. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Murder in America to see photos from every case that we cover. And please leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. I want to boost our reviews. Let's try to break a record this week with as many reviews as we can get. But yeah, thank you guys so much for listening from both Courtney and I. We love y'all and we'll see you in two weeks.